0: Well, hello there, and welcome to this Calvary Longview audio message. We're so glad you've chosen to take a moment to discover with us the truth that can be found in the Bible, and we pray that you'll be blessed by what you hear. Today, we have a guest speaker here to share with us an encouraging message about Jesus. We can't wait to get into God's Word, so crack open your Bible, grab your note-taking tools, and we'll get started.
1: have a lot of Bibles in this country. Not everybody in the world is that fortunate. I remember years ago my wife had a chance to go to Russia and Ukraine and uh, this was back in the early 90s and it was just starting to open up somewhat um, after the fall of the Iron Curtain. But um, it was interesting we coming back and sharing how people just loved getting a Bible because they took a bunch of Bibles with them. And in some places they actually had to be Bible smugglers in some of the areas because it was still that uh, strict and they even bribed guards at uh, border crossings with Bibles, which is pretty neat. It shows you how desperate people are to have the Word of God. And uh, I'm not Pastor Al, by the way. You guys saw him on the video, <laughs> encouraging you to come out tonight for Sunday night prayer, and I would like to do the same. Pastor Al was asked to speak somewhere else today, so that's where he is. And he, uh, knowing that, had asked me, knowing that Gideons would be here, to somehow tie in what I teach today with uh, what the Gideons do, which is pass out the Word of God. And so I hope you will see that today, that it is great to pass out the Word of God. It's, it's great to buy the Word of God, but it's even greater when you read the Word of God. So, um, oh, I'm actually my name is Ray, and I'm one of the elders here in case you don't know who I am. So with that, I'd like for you guys to turn in your Bibles to... Romans chapter 12, this may be very familiar scripture to you, but we're going to be looking today at uh, a couple of verses in Romans and then we're going to be looking at another scripture later to try to tie all this together. So before we get into that, I want to pray, Father, that you would lead us and guide us today, that your spirit would take over, Lord, and uh, put life into these words. Lord. A lot of these words are your words right out of the scriptures, and then, Lord, some words that I feel that you have given me to share, and I pray, Lord, that they would be food for your people, Lord, regardless of uh, their age in Christian life, Lord, but from the youngest to the oldest, age-wise and Christian walk-wise, Lord, that you would feed us today. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. So Romans 12, we'll look at the first two verses which for any of you who've been uh, Christians for a while, this may be very familiar, and that's okay. I don't know about you guys, but I find that I need to read a lot of the familiar scriptures over and over again, Uh, especially some of them. And these are actually, these two verses here and the two I'm going to share later are actually some of my favorite verses. And the reason they're some of my favorite verses is because it causes me to think deeper, I mean, we know we have a lot of favorite verses that maybe it's just an encouragement for a moment or about something that's going on, but these verses make me think deeper and dig deeper within myself, within my mind, and with my walk with the Lord. So we're going to look at verses 1 and 2, and this is Paul writing, and he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God." Paul starts out, I beseech you, and that really means I beg you, so Paul is really pleading urgently for these people to do what he is now going to say, and he says, therefore, so Therefore usually refers to something previous. And we'll look in a few moments here at some things that he has laid out. We're not going to try to cover uh, chapters 1 through 11, but we're going to look at some things that Paul laid out in those chapters that he is referring back to as to therefore. So Paul calls them brethren. Notice that. So he is actually writing to Christians. He considers them brothers and sisters in Christ. And he's actually, when he's When you ask somebody or plead with somebody, you're asking them to do something with their will. Use your personal willpower to do this, strive to do this. So God instructs us in the Bible itself that we choose how we're going to live for him. We have choices every day, and we can choose to do what Paul is encouraging us here to do, or we can choose not to do it. And we could even choose to do it part way or do it part time. But Paul is asking us to do this full time. And what is he asking us to do? He's asking us to present our bodies and we'll get into that. But he says by the mercies of God and he's in verses, excuse me, chapters 1 through 11, he lays out a lot of those mercies and we'll look at those individually here in a moment. But he tells us, since you have all these mercies of God, I beseech you. And he's also telling us that by the mercies of God, implied in there is because of the mercies of God and by the mercies of God. So we have reason to do what we're doing, but we also have the power to do what he's asked us to do by the mercies of God. God gives us what we need to get done. So we don't do what we do. Uh, because just we do, we do it because of what Christ has already done for us. Okay, we don't do what we do as far as offering ourselves as a living sacrifice to gain favor with God. We already have favor with God, and that's part of what Paul means when he says because of the mercies of God. We already have His favor, so we're not trying to gain favor with Him. We're not even trying to gain divine mercy because we already have divine mercy. So based on those things. That's why Paul wants us to do what he's asked us to do. So now we're looking at a little list of some of the things that Paul uh, is wanting them to remember. From, verses, from chapters 1 through 11, here's some things I gave you, and I want, based on those things, now I want you to consider how you can be a living sacrifice. So we have justification from the guilt and penalty of sin. And I'm not necessarily going to try to explain all these, because we could be here all day on a lot of these topics. So I'm hoping these things might stir you up as you want to go back and read all of Romans and find out okay, why did Paul make this statement here in 12.1. We have adoption in Jesus and our identification with Christ. We've been placed under grace. We're not under law. And these are all mercies. We've been given the Holy Spirit to live within us. We have promise of help in all affliction and trials. We have the assurance of a standing in God's election. We have confidence in coming glory. We also have confidence of no separation from the love of God. We have confidence in God's continued faithfulness. So in light of mercy, past, present, and future, Paul begs us to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. And here, in a sense, if you're familiar with the Old Testament thing, this would be like a priest. So it's a priestly thing involved here. And the scripture calls us priests. We are all priests. All those of us who have been born again or in Christ's family, we are all priests. So this is a priestly function in a sense. Yeah, in a spiritual sense, we're actually bringing our bodies to put them on the altar. And you notice we call living sacrifices. So David Guzik... I liked what he said here when he's talking about bringing our bodies. He said, uh, it's best to see the body here as a reference to our entire being. Whatever we say about our spirit, soul, flesh, and mind, we know that each live in our bodies. When we give the body to God, the soul and spirit go with it. Present your bodies means that God wants you to not, excuse me, that God wants you, not just your work. You may do all kinds of work for God, but never really give him yourself. So this is an appeal here that that Paul is saying your will, even though he's telling us to present our bodies, your will should be the master over your body, not the other way around. Our will is to bring our bodies into subjection, is to bring our bodies to the altar so to speak. The body is a powerful and wonderful servant, but it's a terrible master. And any of us who ever get into the flesh find out very quickly that the body is a very terrible master. <laughs> but it can do wonderful and great things when it's under the control of the mind, the will, and the, the spirit. So. so when we keep the uh, present our bodies as a living sacrifice and keep it there, it keeps the body in its proper place. What's interesting is that the ancient Greeks which would have been a lot of the people Paul was talking to or Greek influence, the Romans had a lot of Greek influence even though they were Romans, they were definitely influenced by Greece. And they would have never thought of anything about presenting their body as something holy to God because the Greeks at that time didn't think highly of the body. They thought it was something to shun, to be away from. And it really didn't matter much in their culture what the body did because the body was of no import. But uh, in 1 Corinthians 6.20, And there would be lots of other verses that would uh, tend to support this fact that God wants us to know He is concerned with our bodies because He says, for you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Our bodies belong to the Lord. Another place tells us our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So a living sacrifice, the people Paul had been writing to at that time were very familiar with sacrifices, you know, where things were slaughtered and burned totally up. The Jews, and the pagans, the Gentiles, all of them would have been familiar with that. So can you imagine if you were familiar with that kind of a culture and now somebody's telling you to be a living sacrifice? You're wondering, okay, how does that work? You know, we know how we do other sacrifices. And it was quite common in pagan culture, especially Jewish culture, though, that not all sacrifices to God were consumed in fire, but... This is one of those that Paul is talking about would be referenced with fire. So this would be in a sense that we're bringing our bodies to lay on a fiery altar that will never, we're coming live because in the Old Testament the offering came dead. It was killed before it was brought to the altar. We're to bring a living thing, our bodies, to the altar and it's going to be on the altar but it will not be consumed. And what's happening there is that God, as we're presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, burns out the impurities within us. He's not burning us up, but he's burning out the impurities within us to make us even more holy. Because Paul says here, an offering that's holy and acceptable to God. So the holiness that we would bring as we bring our bodies to the altar is actually a decision for holiness. Because in of ourselves, we don't have holiness. But we need to have a decision for holiness that God can work in us, that we would yield to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So as we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, God makes our lives holy in a sense by burning out the things that are not holy. This is often called sanctification, this process. When we are born again, we are sanctified. And sanctified means to be set apart and in the Christian sense, it's set apart for God's use. So the moment you're born again, except Christ born again, you are sanctified, but there's an ongoing process, and the Bible has many places it talks about it, called sanctification. It's, it's a process. Probably most of you have found out that you weren't instantly sanctified in the sense that you no longer had sin in your life or things that did be corrected. If you didn't find that out, You need to find it out soon. So So holy is kind of a definition here, and and this definition really applies in a sense to us in relation to uh, holiness toward God. It means hallowed, and hallowed means consecrated or set apart to a sacred use or to the service or worship of God, purity of heart, moral goodness, a life dedicated to divine precepts. So in that sense, we are called to be holy, to be set apart, to have moral goodness and have our lives dedicated to divine precepts, in other words, the precepts of God. Paul says that this is your reasonable service. In other words, if you were to analyze this and really think about this, it's only logical that you would do this based on what God has done, based on the things that Paul has really laid out in the first 11 chapters. And also, it's interesting that this particular Greek word, which I won't get into because I don't really know Greek, but I've read this, from somebody who knows Greek, and this particular word is used twice in the New Testament, and here it's used in Romans uh, 12.1, it's also used in 1 Peter 2.2, where Peter says, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. So... It could be translated of the word. So what Paul is really saying here is that reasonable service is a life of worship according to God's word. There's no other way we're going to uh, live a life that is reasonable or holy without without that. So Paul says it's reasonable. Think about it, folks. (laughs) That's what he's really saying. This is only logical. This is what you should do. And service also here is considered as divine service or as worship, and there's actually some translations, and you may be familiar with some of those, that translate this as this is your spiritual worship. So that might be an interesting concept to some of us that what we do, how we live our lives, is actually an act of worship. A lot of times we think we have worship services where we come together like today and we worship, we sing some songs, we pray, we praise. But the word, not only here in a lot of places, make it clear that our whole life is to be a life of worship. And That doesn't necessarily mean that we go around our whole life doing what we're doing here today. But the fact that our lives are dedicated to God, that we have put them on the altar, and we're letting God work in our lives by burning out the things that need to be burned out, that is an act of worship in itself. So... Our worship to God and service to God is not limited to certain acts or places or times. It's to be continual at all times, all places, and all activities. Our lives should be ongoing worship. So in verse 2, Paul says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now these two verses really uh, support each other. We're not really going to present our bodies as a living sacrifice unless our minds have been <laughs> set right to understand what Paul's asking. And if we do part of what's in, fir- in the first one, we will actually start doing some of this conforming process. So they go together. But conformed, obviously it means to be molded or formed into some kind of shape or Uh, the world, as used here, could mean the age. Don't be conformed to the age you live in or the era you live in. And truly, it means worldly system. Don't be conformed by or to the worldly system. And we are in the world. You know, Jesus made that plain. We're in the world, but not to be of the world. Transform means to be changed from one form to another. And that, that particular Greek word is metamorpho. And that's where we get metamorphosis. So... We get to come from being a caterpillar to a beautiful butterfly. And that's the DNA of a butterfly is all in the caterpillar. So in a sense, even though they're a new form, they are the same. I mean you know, so they haven't lost their total identity, but they've become beautiful. And that's what God wants to do with us. So Paul, when he gives us in verse two, he gives us a don't. And then he replaces the don't with a do. Sometimes I don't do that enough in my life. I'll just say don't, but don't give a good option. You know, okay, what do I do then? If I don't do this, what do I do instead? So Paul gives us a don't, then he tells us a do. He says, don't be conformed to this world or by this world. Don't let the world's values, philosophies, or lifestyles, or attractions form us or mold us. Instead, do this. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Replace the wrong thinking and understanding you have with the correct thinking and understanding. So we're warned again about the world system, the popular culture, and the manner of thinking, and for the most part the world system is in rebellion against God. So if we go with the world system and the world's thinking, most of it is anti-God. And I think the passage indicates that this is a uh, ongoing process that we're continually deciding between. Two options, so to speak. Or we could be conformed or we'll we be transformed. And you know, I've unfortunately known Christians who seem to be progressing pretty good on the road to transformation and get stumbled up in the world, and it looks like the metamorphosis is going back the other way. It's like to become a caterpillar again. So um, somebody once said the mind is a battlefield. <laughs> and some minds are a bigger battlefield than others. So So the renewing of the mind comes about by knowing God's word and applying it. That word is knowing Christ and his doctrines, but it's done through the Holy Spirit. We're not left just to our own intellect, our own strength. God has given us the Holy Spirit. Those of us who have Christ, we have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is one who through the word will work the transformation in our lives. So it's imperative that we know God's word and apply it. We don't want to just be hearers of the word, but doers. So when Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Understand that Paul's not talking about that God has three different levels of will. God's will is good, it's acceptable, and it is perfect. And the transforming, as Paul says, will prove God's will. And as we are transformed, we prove, we discover, we display, and we make known God's will. Not only do we to make it known to other people, we make it known to ourselves. So somebody might say, I don't want to be transformed by the world. We know that. And the question might be, I want to be transformed, but how do I do that? Well, Paul says it's done by the renewing of your mind. But the problem for some Christians, and sometimes it's, uh, a bigger problem than, than other times, or with some Christians, it may be a deeper problem to other cre- uh, Christians. And it's easy for any of us at any point to uh, drift in and out of these two issues that can cause problems with transformation. It could be living your Christian life based on feelings or trying to live a Christian life based totally on actions or doing things. So the life that's based on feelings says, how do I feel today? How do I feel about my job? How do I feel about my wife? How do I feel about my neighbor? How do I feel about the preacher? But this life of feeling, just going on to feelings too much, will never know the transforming power of God because it ignores the renewing of the mind. Then the life that's based on doing says, don't give me your theology, just tell me what to do. Give me the four points for this and the seven keys for that. In other words, just lay it out. Just lay it out there for me minute. I'll just follow these steps. This life of doing would never know the transforming power of God either because it ignores the renewing of the mind. That's not to say that God is against feelings or that God is against doing. You read the scripture enough, you know that God <laughs> himself is, is full of powerful and passionate feeling. So, God has feelings. He also commands us to be doers. So feelings and doing are completely insufficient foundations for the Christian life, though. The first question can't be, how do I feel or what do I do? The first question should be, what is true here? What does God's word say? So Paul, within these two verses, gives us four points about how to live out the will of God by using the scriptures here, first one he says, keep in mind the rich mercy of God to you, past, present, and future, and that's when he says, by the mercies of God. Second, he's he's really telling us as an act of intelligent worship, decide to yield your entire self to Him, in other words, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Resist conformity to the thoughts and actions of this world, do not be conformed. We focus on God's word and fellowship with Him. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And if we do those things, then our life will show the will of God. And we will prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And again, we need the Holy Spirit and our reliance on Him for those things to occur. So now we're going to go to a couple other scriptures. And uh, I think. This going to be on the overhead, so you don't have to turn there. But since Second Timothy chapter three, verses sixteen and seventeen, and again for a lot of you this will be very familiar scripture, but I'm coming here because it ties in so well uh, with what we just read in Romans. Paul's writing to Timothy here, and he says all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So earlier in this chapter, Paul had exhorted Timothy to continue in these things. And what he was really doing, he was building up telling Timothy, is you continue in these things because the Bible comes from God and not from man. The Bible is a God-inspired book. It's breathed out from God himself. In fact, if you get down to the literal in there, it says that, the, uh, the words are breathed, God breathes words. The Bible doesn't say here that all scripture writers are inspired by God. It says the words are inspired by God. Obviously, the scripture writers are inspired by God, but the words themselves, even though God breathes into them, he has breathed through them to give us the Bible. So the words we have are actually breathed by God written down by man for us, but they were breathed by God. They're his words, they're not men's words. Adam Clark, this is a guy, uh, uh, some of you may have heard of him, but he lived in the late 1700s and early 1800s, and he had this to say about the word. He says, false doctrine cannot prevail long where the sacred scriptures are read and studied. Error prevails only where the book of God is withheld from the people. The religion that fears the Bible is not the religion of God. He lived in a time when um, not all the churches wanted people to have the Bibles themselves. And I don't know if you guys have read any history about Bibles coming out and being produced and printed, but it has been a struggle over the ages. You know, we live in a very fortunate and blessed time now, especially in this country. There's still countries in the world where you could not print a Bible. Um, but a lot of the, the uh resistance to the Bible being printed and given to the, the common man and woman came from within the church, unfortunately. And uh, there's, still, there's still one big group out there right now that does not encourage people to read their Bibles. I, I know of one big denomination that does that. And there may be individual places where that's not an encouragement coming from the pulpit. But as you guys know here, we encourage all of you to be in the Word, be in the Word as much as possible. And always go back, check it out, what you've heard from up here. Make sure it was right on. So, so all scripture. So how much, of, how much of this is inspired? Oh, yeah, very good. And guess what? Even the boring parts in here were inspired by God. Even the parts you don't understand or I don't understand were inspired by God. Anybody in here ever found any boring parts in the Bible? But you know, we're going to, we'll kind of address that here in a moment about some of those things there. But they're all, when you think about it, God breathed this, gave it to us. And I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I probably don't take it serious enough, or you know, enough to go get it and read it, but I'll find something else to do. But this is God talking. But sometimes we'd rather listen to uh, some news program or something else, you know, not to, come to condemn anybody for what they listen to or whatever, but sometimes we put this on the back shelf instead of the front shelf. To so all scripture, regardless of whether you understand it or whether you find it interesting, it's all inspired by God. And guess what, it's profitable, all of it. Even the boring stuff is profitable. Even the stuff we don't understand is profitable. So it's profitable in different ways and one of those ways is for doctrine. It tells us what is true about God, what's true about man, what's true about the world we live in and it tells us what's true about the world to come. At least to some degree, we have enough information is profitable for reproof and correction with the authority to rebuke us and correct us. So we're under the authority of God's word, or we're supposed to be. And if the Bible Bible exposes that any of our doctrine or our conduct or our thoughts or our actions, if the Bible exposes them as wrong, guess what? We are wrong. The Bible is not wrong. We are wrong. It's profitable for instruction in righteousness. It tells us how to live a life of righteousness, to live a righteous life. And I realize our righteousness is really in Christ, but even the Word talks about the righteous acts of the saints. There are things we do, particularly things that God has asked us to do, and doing them the way He's asked us to do them, are considered righteous acts. So we can do righteous things. And guess what? This makes something else plain, or should that we can understand the Bible. Okay, the Bible, if you couldn't understand it, would not be profitable. Okay. Now That's not to say that we all understand it to the same degree, but it is understandable. And sometimes it's not understandable to us. We can find somebody that does find that part understandable and can pass that on to us. But there's something that's wonderful about, let me cover this verse. it's profitable when we understand it literally. So if we take the Bible literally, we also understand that it means that we take it literally within its context, within the literary context. By that I mean as an example, in Psalm 6-6 David says, all night I made my bed swim, I drenched my couch with my tears. Obviously, that's literary device used within poetry, within the Psalms, and obviously David did not float his bed with his tears. So some you have to kind of understand that as you're going through. Sometimes yes, it's picturesque, it's uh, allegory, or explain something in you know just to show the extent. And this example here, you can tell that David was very distraught. He did a lot of crying. And maybe to him, in a sense, it felt like his whole bed was wet and it was soaked, and it was so wet and soaked that it was floating. But obviously, that's not the case. Nobody's got that much water in their body to start with to do that. But otherwise, when the Bible speaks of science, even though it's not a science book, when it speaks of science, it is scientifically true. When it speaks of history, it is historically true. When it speaks in prophecy, it is prophetically true. And we need to understand that and have that attitude as we read it that the Bible is true and the Bible is accurate. And Paul says, but in here too, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So Paul was exhorting Timothy, continue in these things because the Bible will make you complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. And obviously there will be every good work God has called you to do. Now complete doesn't mean that the whole Christian life is about reading the Bible, and it doesn't mean that it's the only important thing in good ministry is teaching. It's not what it means. But complete means that the Bible leads me into everything I need if I'll be a hearer and a doer. Got to hear it to do it. I will be complete as a Christian, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This also reminds those who teach that they are to be equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. So we don't ignore prayer or worship or evangelism or good words, or excuse me, good works, because the Bible itself, as you read the words, tells us to do all those things. So if we continue to be a hearer and a doer of the word, we will become complete. When we come to the Bible and let God speak to us, it changes us. It makes us complete and transforms us, which would bring us back to Romans 12, 2, where it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So we let the Bible guide our thinking. Our minds become renewed, become transformed. And here's the fun part. We actually start to think like God does. But there's another level that goes just way to our intellect. A lot of things we pick up with the intellect, and we pick it up obviously through the Holy Spirit, making it clear to us. But sometimes we pick up things in the Bible because there's a spiritual work going on as we're reading the Word. And here's some of the things that the Bible does spiritually to us as we're reading the Word. And one of these comes from uh, 1 Peter 1 Peter 1.23. And it talks about eternal life. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. So there's eternal life found within the words of the scriptures. Ephesians 5.26, another spiritual work that's going on in us, is that the Bible spiritually cleanses us. And here is written that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of of water by the word. In Ephesians 6.17, the Bible lets us know, or actually let us know, it gives us power against demonic spirits. And here Paul writes, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. These are things we gain spiritually. We may not even understand them intellectually, but we gain these things spiritually. In Matthew 8.16 we can see that the Bible, the words of God, can bring spiritual power to heal our bodies. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Another way that we're spiritually affected or influenced is Psalms one nineteen twenty-eight. 28. It says, My soul melts from heaviness. Strengthen me according to your word. God's Word can bring us strength. And one more, Romans 10:17, the Bible has the power to spiritually build faith in us. It says, "So then, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we increase our faith by hearing the Word of God. And we do that. Some of the hearing, obviously, is by being here, coming together uh, and hearing teaching or hearing sermons, going to Bible studies but also hearing it in your own homes where you read. Um, so reading is a type of hearing. I should point that out for sure. So because of these spiritual levels there on which the Word of God operates, we don't always have to understand everything that we're reading for the Bible to be effective in our lives. Sometimes people are disappointed because they're not understanding everything you're reading. Read it. Read it. There's food there. You may not even recognize the food at the moment or understand the food. There was a guy that once said that uh, over the years, I suppose I've gone to church more than a thousand times. I can't remember the specific content of even one sermon over those many years. He says, what good is it to go to church a thousand times? Another wise man's reply was, over the past many years, I have eaten more than a thousand meals prepared by my wife. I can't remember the specific menu of any of those meals but they nourished me along the way. Without them, I would be a much different man. So the Bible will do its spiritual work in us if we let it. That brings us to one more uh, scriptural reference, and this is from 1 Corinthians 2, 14. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. That's a heads up to people who don't have Christ. Yes, you'll be extremely confused, for the most part, trying to read the Bible. And I know people in here that have testified to me that they tried to read the Bible. And when they finally got saved, <laughs> they started to understand the Bible. Now they don't understand everything in there, but it made so much more sense. That also tells us, though, those of us who have the Holy Spirit the born again, that if we try to approach the Bible truly in a just totally intellectual Uh, manner, we're gonna miss much. We need to be approached with a spiritual approach. So I encourage everybody who reads the Word to pray. Read and pray, read and pray. And if you don't understand it, read it anyway. It's really good. I know a lot of people shun away from certain places in the Old Testament because it's boring again, or uh, they don't understand really what's going on, but it's really, I think, important for a Christian life that we read the Old Testament to understand some of the things they talk about in the New Testament. And the beauty is, if you read the New Testament, you'll understand a lot of things in the Old Testament, especially things that they can't understand about things pointing toward Christ. The whole Bible, from the very beginning to the end, really is all about Jesus. Even the historical stories, when you start piecing it all together, it's all about Jesus. But people have excuses, you know, we have lots of Bibles in the United States. Um, even among evangelical Christians, which I think we would consider ourselves within that group, Bible reading is not a real priority, even though everybody within that circle probably pretty much highly esteems the Bible. They would say, yeah, that's God's word. That's God talking to us. But putting action to those beliefs is not always happening. And this isn't to chastise anybody. I want to encourage you to spend more time in your scriptures. And the flimbiest excuse of all is, I don't have time. Boy, you know, you might try to fool us with that, but God knows better. Everybody in here has time to read the Bible. You may not have as much time as somebody else. You may not have time to sit there and read a whole book at one time. But we all do have time. Because if you look at your day, what you're doing, okay? yeah, when you're on the job, you probably don't have time to read the Bible. You know, you were hired to do something else. You weren't hired to read the Bible unless you read it on your break, and that's that's up to you. But we don't cheat our employer by trying to be (laughs) reading the Bible. But there's plenty of opportunities. I'm sure everybody in here has got some time that they watch the news or um, they're playing on their cell phone, tablets, whatever. There's time there to do it. And if it scares you because you don't understand it, please keep in mind that even if you don't understand it, it's valuable for you to read it. Now I, I didn't I'm trying to remember some of the things I came across the other day. I was reading about it in England, the United Kingdom. Their Bible illiteracy is way worse than ours, and we're pretty bad over here. But 56 percent of the adults interviewed there thought that The Hunger Games, which was a movie I never saw, but 56 percent of them thought it was probably a story out of the Bible. thought that Harry Potter was probably a character out of the Bible. Scary, isn't it? 33% of them did not realize that Adam and Eve (laughs) were in the Bible. So if you think about it, United Kingdom used to be supposedly kind of like we used to be a Christian nation. I mean they sent out, uh, who knows how many thousands of missionaries went out from England. But you see what's happened there. You go around now and you would ask people here in the United States, and I know this from a lot of kids you would meet out there in the community. If you ask them who Jesus is, their answer might be that Jesus is a swear word. That's all they know about Jesus. But we have no excuse. We should know more and more about who God is. We should more and more be able to have our minds transformed and not conformed. So... If you guys are like me, if you find out something happens, there's two or three days you didn't read the Bible, it's not that I feel guilty. I feel like I've been missing something. I've been missing some food, you know. It's kind of like going on a fast. But when we do a fast, it shouldn't be from the Scriptures. Let's make it from something else. Maybe the pork chop and the cake, but not the Bible. So I'm going to close in prayer, and the worship team will come back up. And there will be some folks up here to pray with you after the service. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, may we be encouraged to...
0: We hope you've enjoyed spending this time in God's Word, and our prayer is that you'll take it with you and apply it to your life. If you'd like to learn more about Calvary Longview, visit our website at cclongview.com. While you're there, you can find more teachings, request prayer, or even find out how you can get involved with what God is doing in our city. We hope you have an amazing day. We'll see you back here next time, and remember, Jesus loves you, and so do we.